You are now listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Five, six, seven, eight. Holla, boys and girls, it's the BGN. Coming from the Marvel world to the DC friends. All the way from Hollywood to the PCN. She defends everyone from sleazy men. Won't apologize for spitting Shonda Rhimes. The space that we make is never colonized. We're talking games and movies and actors. Words. Better shake your booties for Black Girl Nerds. Thanks for tuning into this BGM podcast extra. You know, today is a very special day, and the reason why we are recording this on a Wednesday is because Wednesdays is known for Loki Day. And it is kind of bittersweet because the series finale is upon us. I mean, it's already here and many of you have already seen the series finale and maybe some of you haven't seen it yet. You're waiting. But either way, we are going to celebrate the series finale by talking to some creatives behind the scenes. If you haven't done so already, feel free to check out our YouTube channel. Of course, like and subscribe, but check it out because we've had the pleasure of speaking to so many of the folks in front of the camera as well as the director and the writer of the series. But we're going to talk to the production designer and the costume designer of Loki. You know, there's so many talented people that put this show together and we are so incredibly humbled and honored to be able to sit down and chat with them. None other than Christine Wada, the costume designer in our first segment and Kasra Farahani, the production designer. So in this episode, it is hosted by Ryan and sit back, relax and enjoy this episode, this BGN podcast extra of Loki. Hey, Christine, how you doing? Hey, good. Hi, Ryan. How are you? So good. It's so great to talk to you. These guys looked fabulously evil, I guess I could say that, or, you know, kind of a <laughs> mixture in between. <laughs> so I got to I gotta start with, because this is my favorite project of yours. How do you go from teaching us about bridesmaids dresses to the God of Mischief? How do, where does that phone call come from? <laughs> um, well, I mean, you're kind of, I'd say with every single film project you're doing it's all kind of still the same creative process it goes from like it's storytelling right so and then being able to build those worlds right so it kind of doesn't matter I think you know I could probably also design an interior of a house I don't know or build a bridge (laughs) I could build a bridge yeah, I mean, with these patterns, you probably could, to be honest. Let's be honest. You probably could build a house with these patterns. Um, I want to, I guess I'll start with the mischief god himself, Loki, the variant jacket. I love the pop collar. Was that just like a little accent? Was that something from Tom? Was that something from you that you guys wanted to add to kind of still give him the edge, you know, without him being in his, in his typical, you know, superhero outfit or? Yeah, I mean, I think very early on, we had the conversation that like, you could probably put Tom Hiddleston in like, you know, I don't know, a polo shirt and he's in or whatever, a tank top and he'll make it whatever. He's going to make anything <laughs> stylish and fashionable. And, um, and so really, you know, it was it, the minute Tom put on that jacket, 
he popped his collar. I'm just going to be honest. It's just like the minute, you know, he just can. Yeah. The minute (laughs) like instinctual, it was, he had a Loki instinctual moment and because he really does. I mean, wow. Does he know that character? I mean, he just motivate every single motivating part of that character so well that you could, you know, it's a pleasure because you could give him just that windbreaker and he knows exactly what Loki would do with it, you know? And also too about this, um, and also I know um, the uh, the Minutemen or some of the people in TVA were wearing them like the men, the the skinnier uh, ties I thought were interesting. That really kind of gave them like this like really rigid kind of feel to them. Um, you know, like they, they kind of wanted to bust out of it, but it's very uniform and rigid. I felt like that little accent on it. I don't know if that was something you guys just like, well, this looks stylish and we go with it. Or was it something that you really wanted to add to it? I really wanted to, it was very intentional in that, um, it's kind of, it's all cued off of a very, um, specific mid-century vibe. And, uh, and honestly, it's, um, a tie I pulled from like the mod era that really was that skinny. And right. uh, so it's just trying to, you know, re reimagine and repurpose some of these elements from mid-century into this sort of timeless uh, world that needed to feel a little uh, neutral and just like a mass, right? Like this mm-hmm. sort of um, neutral works workspace, right? Right. And speaking of two, well, maybe not so neutral. I was gonna say speaking of neutral, maybe not so neutral here. The goddess of mischief, Sylvie's costume. How was that creating that? And then also like with the with the horn crown, a helmet, kind of missing a horn a little bit. Like she's been I, through some things. Exactly. Well, be, that it, that definitely speaks to this. You know, the, the nomadic, scavenged nature of Sylvie, who's just basically, you know. Uh, for sure the Mad Max of, you know, timelines just out there um, in with not only vengeance, but also soul searching. Right. And um, so I, you know, for, for me, the costume needed to feel like a battle outfit, but show some history and purpose. So, you know, so the armor actually, you know, it has like um, sword wounds on it and, you know, she's missing her horn and she's, you know, got not high heels on. She has boots on. She's got pants that she could fight in, not in, you know, it's, it, it's all kind of a, really to feel sort of scavenged and timeless and tough you know? Yeah. 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 It very much feels like that. I want to ask you too, cause I'm just so curious and geeking out on the details here. How much of it are you like sewing, creating with your team or how much of it is that you just pick a piece here, you pick a, you know, khaki here, maybe a skinny paint here and mix it together. Um, there was not one thing on that show. <laughs> I mean, basically everything's built. Wow. Everything's made. Yeah. I would, yeah, everything's, everything was made. I mean, of course, there's some of the background TVA stuff that isn't, but no, it's all created because in order to create a convincing world of a, with a palette and um, 
a fit and also the multiples you need for, for fighting, just the practical element, you really have to build it all, you know? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And um, also too, I want to ask you about one of the uh, last questions here, the colors, uh-huh. they're very, you know, neutral and, um, you know, simplistic classic, but they still give you an edge, you know, where you're dealing oh, with the, the tan and the darkness, you know? Oh, good. I mean, I have to say, I wasn't sure if the world was ready for brown, <laughs> shark skin. Um, and, um, but I really loved, I love the idea of it because it is sort of retro in its palette. And I, and all of those colors just felt like, um, listen, there's so much to look at and to digest with these stories and with, uh, just even the history of Loki that you want the costumes to to facilitate it, but not be like distracting, if that makes any sense. And I really felt like the that color choice could help make things, you know, uh, like we could watch the progression of the aging, we could on Tom's shirt and that it just allowed um, the story to come through a little bit more. Yeah, that's, I was- Kitschy, I just didn't want it to be like, kitschy colors if that makes sense like right yeah and it was kind of cool how you did that you blurred the line between that a little bit because you you definitely brought the edge but you're thinking are we ready for this brown this much tan I know (laughs) I think it did work I'm so happy because I'm not gonna lie that there was a moment of like ooh, is this gonna work is the world gonna be ready for this and not like like I feel like there's so much blue in in futuristic type stuff you know, and blue or gray or whatever. So it was, you know, fun to just test it out and have it work because I think it was successful. (laughs) It definitely was. I definitely enjoyed it. I got to go find me a a jacket that I could pop the collar on. I'm already ready for it. Um, (laughs) Exactly, right, exactly. Uh, As we kind of wrap here, I wanted to kind of ask you, do you remember, I'm just thinking as a costume designer, like maybe how cool and how crazy it can be at times behind the scenes on set. Do you have uh, like an interesting moment, a costume, a last minute hack you had to do to kind of get this done? Mm, Last minute thing? I mean, geez. Or any interesting hack you can can share with us non-costume designers. (laughs) Well, um, I will just say this, that you're always worried about people blowing out their pants on Marvel projects. (laughs) I mean, there is so much conversation about the seams in the pants that uh, you would not believe how much conversation there is about that. <laughs> now it's gonna have me thinking going into the last episode. That's pretty funny. I did not think about that, but well, then think about it's very true. That. Yeah, because I mean he's wearing Tom's wearing like suiting, it's not stretchy fabric, you know. So right. yes, there's a lot of conversations about that. Because there actually well, is a lot of stretchy fabric in, in Loki, which is yeah rare for for Marvel, you know. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. Well, Christine, I've had so much fun talking colors and fabrics. And good luck with building your house using patterns. I feel like you can do it. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. (laughs) Thanks so much. You too. How you doing, Kasra? Very good. How are you doing? Um, Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. 
Um, before we get into how you created these sets and the production of Mischief here, I want to ask you, because um, you're a part of some of my, some of these other cooler projects, uh, the Divergent series, Avatar, and you do the concept art. Can you kind of break that down a little bit for listeners who not don't quite understand what that is? Sure, sure. So my background before getting to production design was uh, I was a concept artist for a long time. Uh, and so what you do as a concept artist, you're kind of, you work with the production designer and the director um, to create the kind of first images of what's in the script. So the script writes something down and somebody has to create the initial images of what's there so that everybody can look at it and discuss it and have a conversation about it. And then through that process, it iterates and evolves until you get to a final design. So as a concept artist, you're kind of the front front line of that process. Yeah, and speaking of which, shall we flash for production design? I'm such a visual learner. I love these sets and these cool um, structures you get with Loki. So mm -hmm. how did you identify the design style for the God of Mischief? How did that come about? How did you start with that? So, you know, the, the, the kind of visual uh, conceit for the show, and I think narrative in many ways is that, narrative conceit as well, is that like it's, the show is anchored in the TVA. That's our home base. And from there, we hop out to these different worlds. Um, so the, the kind of, you know, the, the, the anchor look of the TVA uh, was described by Michael Waldron, the, the, the head writer in, his, in the first brief I read as um, Mad Men meets Blade Runner. Um, so it's like the mid-century modernism, Mad Men colliding with the like sci-fi tech hardware version of sci-fi that is Blade Runner. Uh, and Kate Heron, the director, and myself, both independently, even before we'd met, felt that this, another really critical influence for this material was Terry Gilliam's Brazil, because it has this really strong, beautiful anachronism, you know, different things from different times colliding into each other in really strange ways. And it also has this great um, execution of a, of a monolithic, cold bureaucracy, which was relevant to the TVA also. So we took, took a lot of reference from those three things. And basically like the look of the TVA was, if I had to boil it down, I think, you know, there's a lot of different versions of mid-century modernism. In Europe, it's sort of colder. Like there's the brutalism that you have in, in, uh, in, in some, some beautiful examples of brutalism in, in England. Right. And then you have the kind of Soviet-influenced version of mid-century modern architecture that you have in Eastern Europe. And so we took this sort of coldness and, and stoicism of that language and combined it with the warmth and, and whimsical patterns of American mid-century modernism to create these spaces that are sort of, you know, provoke like a cognitive dissonance feeling in the people in them in that you walk into this space um, and the colors are warm and it, you think maybe it's friendly, but the, the scale is so imposing and ominous, it feels like it wants to crush you. So you never, you never can feel settled. That was the goal, at least with the TVA to create that. And speaking too of the TVA and not feeling settled, uh, settled about it, Ravona's office um, is like, you have these big timekeeper statues in there. And it's yeah. so very like rigid, like you wanted to have a conversation and it's very like, you know, structured and rigid. Like was those, were those like key pieces you guys had to have, like no matter what? Yeah, I mean, that was something that we proposed, you know, it wasn't in the script, but ba basically um, 
you know, the, her office represents the most swank, beautiful, high-end space in the TVA because she's a very high-ranking person. So we we wanted to take this, you know, all the the lux uh, visual elements of mid-century architecture with shag carpeting and a conversation pit and beautiful built-in reel-to-reel and hi-fi and her bar built-in uh, and and these lovely bookshelves. Um, and then to contrast that, um, we brought in these like weird elements, which were these sculpted stone timekeepers uh, to contrast this to these two ideas of like the whimsical mid-century modernism again and the stoicism and this idea that even says it on some of the propaganda posters that they're always watching. Um, so right. like, you know, the timekeepers, they, they those statues, they wrap around her desk. They're constantly over her shoulders watching her. And she stares out in the same eye line as they stare out. So she's like aligned with them in that way, visually. And another kind of location in that set I want to talk to you about here as we wrap up. Um, what are the challenges of creating something like Lamentis One? It had mm. this very like ghostly, very scary. It's a panic mode to it. How did you kind of create that? Sure. So Lamentis One, um, was a lot of different things. We shot the beginning of it, we shot in a quarry uh, and we brought in this black sand, this beautiful shiny black sand, uh, because basically the idea for that I proposed was that uh, the, the cross outer crust of Lamentis one, which is a moon, a mining moon, is this beautiful like glossy black crust. And if you break through the surface, there's this rich purple ore that they're mining out of. So if you were to look at it from the air, it looks like black Swiss cheese with purple on the inside, basically. We shot that beginning. <laughs> yeah, it does, yeah. Yeah, and so we shot that bit in a, in a quarry. Um, and then, but you know, and it's a big journey on um, along this like barren uh, and strange, but also familiar as an industrial mining landscape until we get to the city of Sharu, which was a, a huge set that we built. Um, all that stuff was in camera up to 16 feet um, because it was all shot as a, as a virtual oneer, So everything needed to really be there. And there was a lot of elaborate choreography with, with Autumn, our cinematographer and Monique, our stunt coordinator and Kate, our director to figure out uh, the choreography of where they're running, where the camera is, where we're burying these editorial cuts, um, where exactly these practical explosions are happening to, to thwart their movements, like to, to basically make them go the way we wanted them to go and to ultimately arrive where we arrived. So that was a lot of fun. It was a huge amount of work and it was a collaboration between a lot of really smart department heads that we had on that project. And as we kind of wrap here, my last question for you, um, what do you, what are you going to remember most about Loki as you kind of wrap up? I mean, I just feel like there kind of be so many images flashing through your head when you're told to work on this project about a God of mischief, so many things come up, so many obstacles. What are some of the things you're going to remember as you kind of, as everything's wrapping up for you guys? You know, I think what I'll remember, what I think is the most unique about this project is the sheer variety, the amount of different worlds we got to build on this show. I think there's so many beautiful um, things out in the MCU. And I feel like this show was us almost getting to design six Marvel movies. Um, <laughs> yeah. Castro, thank you so much. It's been a phenomenal to talk to you. The sets are beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Bye. Bye-bye.
The Black Girl Nerds podcast is produced by Jamie Brodnax. The opening theme song to our show is written and performed by Samus. Various instrumentals are performed by Samus, Sky Blue, and Shubzilla. You can find various episodes of the Black Girl Nerds podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Audioboom, Google Play Music, and Spotify.